we praise you. You are so unlike anything else in this entire world. We see this love that you gave us, a love that was completely undeserved on our part, but it's a love that's otherworldly, a love that's supernatural, which makes sense because you are the King of kings, Lord of lords. You are the God of this universe. And Lord, we thank you that you stepped off your throne, you came into this world, and you came on a mission not just to teach, not just to show love, but ultimately to redeem. And that came at such a cost. But Lord, we say thank you. And Lord, we pray that as we open Scripture this morning, that you will open our eyes in fresh ways to your love, but then also, Lord, help us to see with clarity of mind, clarity of understanding, what you're calling us to do in response to your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Every single day of our lives, we are making lots of decisions. And some of the decisions we make are somewhat trivial, where we make decisions about what to wear. We all made that decision this morning. We make decisions about what we're going to eat for supper. We make decisions about what we're going to do with our free time before we go to bed at night. We have some decisions that are kind of trivial. We have other decisions that we have to make that, for some reason or another, we procrastinate on. Maybe we are kind of scared of what the decision might lead us to. We might be kind of lazy just putting it off. Maybe it's that we don't really know what to choose. So for the time being, we don't choose anything. Now, there are other times in life where we're coming upon a big decision that we recognize that thing is huge, and we need to make this decision well. So we put in our due diligence, we take it seriously, and and rightly so. Because our decisions that we make deeply shape the direction of our lives. Sometimes the direction of our lives is shaped just by small decisions, almost, almost trivial, routine decisions that we simply make over and over and over, and that shapes the direction of where we're going. Other times in our lives, um, we, we have a small decision, or at least what seems like a small decision, but by making that small decision, what happens is it kind of opens the door to something that is radically life-shaping for us. I think, for instance, of a meeting that I attended years ago, back on April 27th of 2003. I had been in church, and I heard an announcement that, hey, if anyone wants to help launch a college ministry in our church, you should show up for this meeting on Sunday, April 27th, at our pastor's house. And I had a heart for college students, so I thought, sure, I'll go check out this meeting. So I went to my pastor's house on April 27th, and it seemed like a relatively small decision. But it ended up changing the course of my life. Because I doubt, if I, hadn't, if I hadn't gone to that meeting, I doubt I would have married Shelly. Because it was at that meeting that I really got to know Shelly for the first time. I'd, I mean, I'd seen her around, but I didn't really know her. But I got to know her a little bit at that meeting. And by serving alongside of one another in that college ministry through our church, we got to know each other better and better over the next nine months. And eventually came a first date. To Shelly, that first date came way later than it should have. But it came. Eventually came engagement, and then came marriage. And that's just a picture of, you know, a relatively small decision. A decision to, you know what, show up at a meeting to help volunteer with the ministry. And it led to something that changed the course of my life in a very, very good way. And it shows that decisions we make, both small decisions and large decisions, shape the direction of our lives. And today we're talking about the most important decision that we can ever make. 
And I don't just say that just to be dramatic or just to get your attention, although I do want your attention this morning. But I say it because it truly is the most important decision that we can ever make. And to see what that decision is, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We are in a series right now called Parables. And a parable is a story about a real-life type of situation. But Jesus uses that story, uses that parable, to illustrate important truths about God and his kingdom. And the subtitle of the series is that parables are stories that redefine reality. And my prayer for us this morning, and I know this would be Jesus' prayer as well, that as we look at this parable that he told 2,000 years ago, that it will shape our lives to help align us more and more to God's definition of reality. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21 at what is called the parable of the tenants. I invite you to follow along as I pick up in verse 33 where Jesus says, Here is another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, well, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, Jesus said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, this, heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet." So this is the parable of the tenants. And to help us understand this parable, I want to uh, just explain five key symbols that are present here in this parable. And the first symbol is that of the landowner, described in this passage as the master of the house. And the landowner here represents God. It says that, that the landowner established a vineyard. That he put a fence around it. That he dug a wine press in it. And then he put up a, a watchtower to protect that vineyard. And this landowner in the parable represents God. Now we have this vineyard that God, or the landowner, established. And the, the vineyard represents the people of Israel. Now, for us here in the 21st century in America, we don't automatically read this and think, Oh, that vineyard, that's the people of Israel. Probably none of us would naturally think that. But back then, for the people who were listening to Jesus tell this parable, they would have automatically, every one of them, thought, yeah, that parable or that, that vineyard, that represents Israel. And the reason they would have had that implicit understanding is because throughout the Old Testament, 
that one of the primary images for Israel is that of a vineyard. For instance, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah is speaking of God. And and Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved, that's God, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat or a wine press in it. And so we see this very same imagery where God cares for Israel and the metaphor being used is that of a vineyard. Similarly, over in Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, it says, poetically, you brought a vine out of Egypt. And that is talking about, uh, about the exodus of God bringing his people, Israel, out of Egypt. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. And so throughout the Old Testament, there was this imagery of, of a vineyard to describe Israel. And, and Jesus is, is latching onto that. Talking about this vineyard which represents the people of Israel. Now, here in in this parable, we see the landowner entrusted the vineyard to tenants. And that was a very common arrangement back then, where you have a wealthy landowner who has fields or maybe has a vineyard. And and in order to work the land, you know, the the owner may not even be nearby, but he, he leases that land to other people to tenants, to farmers who will then work the land, cultivate the land, make sure that the land is fruitful, and then in return, the landowner receives a portion of the crops. In this parable, the tenants here are the Jewish leaders. The tenants are the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the the rabbis, the priests. These are people who are entrusted by God with the responsibility of cultivating in the people of Israel a heart for God. So the people of Israel will bear the fruit of righteousness and bear the fruit of love for God in their lives. They are the tenants who, are, who, are, who God's entrusting with the responsibility of caring for the vineyard. Now there are two more symbols here in this parable that are crucial to understanding what, what Jesus is saying. And, and one of the uh, other symbols is that of a servant. And these servants are not the people working in the vineyard itself. Those are the tenants. Instead, servants are messengers sent by the landowner to the tenants in order to collect the portion of the fruit that the landowner is owed. And the servants here, sent by the landowner to the tenants, are God's prophets. You think over and over and over, down through the Old Testament, God sent prophets to Israel as messengers Basically, to remind people that, you know what, there's a harvest God is looking for. There should be a fruitfulness in your lives of of life that honors God and a life that is growing in love for God. And the prophets were God's mouthpiece reminding the people that God is expecting this harvest. God is expecting to see fruit come out of you as you love God more and more and more. And so, so God has been sending these prophets to Israel, represented in this parable by servants sent from the landowner to the tenants in the vineyard. Now listen to what happened to these servants when they came into the vineyard. It says in verse 35, the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. And this is not exaggerating what Israel did to the prophets that God sent. 
Because by and large, Israel rejected the prophets that God sent to them. They, they, they ignored them at times. They mocked them. They at times abused them. And at times killed the very prophets that God sent to them. For instance, Jeremiah and Zechariah, two big-name prophets from the Old Testament, they were both stoned to death by the Israelite people. Isaiah, we read from Isaiah earlier, Isaiah 5, about God planting this vineyard. Isaiah was killed by being sawn in two. Pretty gruesome death. But that is how Israel frequently treated the prophets that God sent to them. And that's what Jesus is illustrating here by these servants who, who are beaten, who are killed, who are stoned. That's how Israel treated God's prophets. So what did God do in response? Well, one of the things we have to recognize here is God's immense patience. I mean, he is incredibly patient here because, I mean, he could have just said, Israel, I'm done with you. You have abused my prophets. You've ignored me over and over and over. I'm done. But you see his patience. He did not just send them away. He did not just cast them off. Instead, in the fullness of time, he sent his son. We see in verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. And the son in this parable represents Jesus. Now, this parable occurs not only in Matthew, it also is recorded in Mark and Luke. Um, they are other biographies of Jesus. And in Mark and Luke, when they tell this parable, they include that, that when the landowner sent his son, it says the landowner sent his beloved son. And that's a key phrase. This phrase, beloved son, um, occurs a couple other times in Jesus' ministry. Both times from the mouth of God the Father, coming from heaven. One time at Jesus' baptism, and the second time when Jesus was transfigured, where he's, he's temporarily transformed into his heavenly glory. And both of those times, there's this voice of God the Father coming from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. And so what we see is that God sent his beloved son to Israel in order to cultivate the fruit of righteousness in them. He's looking for a harvest in their lives to, that they will grow in righteousness, grow in their love for God and their dedication to him. And so we see that, that God sent his son. Now what happened next in the parable? Verse 38, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and, and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And this is the parable of the tenants. As Shelley and I were talking about the children's message, we decided let's not tell the actual parable. Because it's a little bit gruesome. It's, it's pretty harsh. I mean, you have beating and you have killing and all kinds of stuff. But this is a parable that Jesus is telling to the people back then. And let's talk a little bit about interpreting this parable. Because it's not enough just to know what those symbolisms are within the parable. Let's talk about what is really going on behind the scenes here. And one of the things we have to understand about this parable is that Jesus is telling his future. Now for us, this parable is relatively easy to interpret that it's about Jesus and, and what's going to happen to him. Because we have the benefit of looking back on events that already took place. But remember, as Jesus is telling this parable, he has not yet been killed. Odds are good, people there listening to this parable are not thinking, well, the son of the parable, that's probably Jesus, and he's going to be killed at some point. They weren't thinking that. 
Because this idea of Jesus' death was not on the radar screen of people back then at that point. And you think about the Jewish leaders. This parable is about them. They are represented as the wicked tenants. But they don't recognize that yet. They really, they don't recognize that at all. I mean, to them, if, if you have this vineyard, and they knew this vineyard represents the, uh, Israel, to them, the wicked tenants were probably the Roman Empire. And they're probably nodding right along with Jesus, thinking, Jesus, you are right. The, those, those wicked tenants, that's the Roman Empire. They're occupying Israel, which they were at that point. Get them out of here, Jesus. That's probably what they're thinking at that point. And you look at the power of this story, I mean, it is the power of parables. It's the power of stories that, that they're just drawn right in. And they're following along. They're, they're buying into what Jesus is saying, and they have no idea that Jesus is about to nail them to the wall. That's what he's about to do, because he's pointing the finger right at them, but they don't realize it yet. And that's clear in verses 40 and 41. And Jesus, he's finished the parable and talked about the son has just been killed by those tenants. And he turns to the Jewish leaders And he says to them, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Keep in mind, they have no idea he's talking about them. And it says, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lay out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And so we see here that that they have no idea again that Jesus is pointing the finger at them, that they are the ones who have defied God, that they are the ones and their ancestors who have killed the prophets. They are the ones who are going to lead the rally to put God's son to death. They don't recognize that yet. Now remember, parables are stories that redefine reality. What Jesus is seeking to do here and what he's going to say next is an attempt to redefine their view of the reality of what God's doing in the world. Look with me to verse 42. Says Jesus said to them, so he's still talking to the Jewish leaders. Have you never read in the scriptures, and then he quotes from Psalm 118, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls in anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus here, he, he turns a corner in the parable. I and mean, the parable officially is over. And Jesus suddenly starts talking about a stone. And you may be wondering, what in the world is the connection here? Jesus, you lost me. You're talking about a vineyard, and now you're talking about a stone who's going to crush people and also be a cornerstone at the same time. Jesus, what are you talking about here? Well, it would be easier if we speak Hebrew. But we don't speak Hebrew. So let me explain what's going on here. There's a word play going on here. They, remember, the parable just ended talking about the sun, and then Jesus trans- transitions directly to talking about a stone. In the Hebrew language, the word for sun is the word ben. In the Hebrew language, the word for stone is the word eben. There's only one letter difference in Hebrew between ben and eben, between sun and stone. And they would have picked right up on this as Jesus is speaking, that he's making a play on words here, basically saying that sun is this rock, and this rock is this sun that you see in the parable. And we have this imagery all over Christianity. For instance, we have a well-known song that says, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. That Christ is this rock that serves as the foundation of our lives if we're willing to follow him. 
But we also have to understand here, as Jesus is talking about him, himself being the cornerstone, this rock, we have to understand that Jesus is central to God's work in the world. That's what the idea is pointing to, that, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone. It's the most important piece of what God is doing in this world. But for the majority of people, Jesus is not a foundation to build their lives on. He's not the solid rock in which they stand. Instead, for many, many people, Jesus is saying, you know what, people are stumbling over Jesus as a rock. And you know what that's like. You're just hiking along and you aren't really paying attention to the path and all of a sudden you kind of stumble a little bit and there's a rock there that you stumbled right over. And Jesus is saying, you know what, there are a lot of people out there who they stumble right over Jesus in that way. He becomes a stumbling block for them. Think about our culture. In our culture, being spiritual is, you know, a reasonable thing in people's minds. It's, it's kind of cool to be spiritual. And if you talk about God in a generic sense, you know what? People will accept that pretty easily. And if you want to be Buddhist or you want to be Wiccan or something like that, people will think, oh, that's pretty cool. Good for you. But if you start talking about Jesus, people get uncomfortable in a big hurry. People begin to push back. They, they kind of want to pull away from you a little bit. They probably aren't going to ask questions. I mean, if you become Buddhist or Wiccan, they might ask questions. Wondering, hey, why is that? What's that all about? That's kind of cool. But if you talk about, you know what, Jesus is really important to me, a lot of people will just kind of start to pull away a little bit. Because Jesus makes people uncomfortable. Because Jesus challenges people's self-centeredness. And Jesus confronts people's sinful habits. And, and Jesus is not very tolerant of all kinds of different roads leading to God. Because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus does not fit our cultural values that are common in the culture around us. And so many people, when it comes to knowing God, they, Jesus becomes not the bridge to God, but becomes instead a stone that they trip over. And, and their preference, rather than embracing Jesus as Lord, they want to look at Jesus maybe as a good moral teacher, as an example of love. But there's no way they want to submit to Jesus as Lord. And so when they come to Jesus as a stone, if they don't just stumble right over him, they want to treat him kind of as a piece of gravel that you might find in your sidewalk that you just kind of kick it to the side and just kind of ignore it. But remember that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It has become the cornerstone. And, and Jesus is not interested in just being seen as some good religious teacher. Now, I said earlier that this passage is, is foretelling the future of Jesus. And we see this passage talks about Jesus' death. There's an implicit reference here to Jesus' resurrection about how even though Jesus is, is, is killed and rejected, he will become the cornerstone, so he has another life. He's resurrected. But this passage also talks about Jesus' return at some time in the future. Verse 44 says, And the one on whom the stone falls will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus here is talking about final judgment. But what we see here is that people who reject Jesus will experience God's wrath. And the topics of wrath and judgment, speaking of our culture, these are not popular topics. But we have to recognize Jesus does not pull any punches either. He's very clear that God is a holy God and God is a just God. And sin and evil needs to be punished. That is where God's wrath comes in. But the cool thing is that Jesus offers freedom from wrath. 
But this parable does serve as a warning. It's a warning that the same stone that people may just want to kick to the side, if you follow along with the stone metaphor of Jesus, people may want to just kick Jesus aside and have nothing to do with him. But that same stone, according to Jesus, in the metaphor, will come back at some point. And if people just kick Jesus to the side and ignored him, they will be crushed by that stone. And so this parable is a warning, pointing out the fact that our decision of what to do with Jesus makes the biggest difference in the world. It's the most important decision we could ever make of what to do with Jesus. John 3.36, that says, Whoever has the Son, meaning Jesus, has life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon them. Jesus, through his death, offers a way for us to not have to face God's wrath. Because Jesus died on the cross to pay our death penalty that we deserve. He died on the cross to absorb God's wrath against sin that we deserve so that then we could go free. That's the good news of the gospel. But we have a decision to make. Are we going to receive that good news? Are we going to receive that gift or are we just going to kind of ignore it or reject it? And if we do, then Jesus is not the one absorbing our wrath. We are the ones who will still receive it. And this parable serves as a warning for us. I want to give just an example of a hurricane. You think about hurricanes. Hurricanes are kind of unique among natural disasters in that they typically come with significant warning. I mean, unlike a tornado that might have like a minute or two of warning or an earthquake that you have sometimes no warning, a, a, a hurricane gives quite a bit of warning whether weather forecasters see it coming. They see it forming. They're able to say, you know what, this is probably where it's going to make landfall and, and, and this is going to be the severity of it. This is what you need to do to prepare for it. And they might even call people to evacuate the area where it's going to make landfall in order to save yourself. But even though you have all these warnings and all this preparation, there are still a lot of people that even though they hear of dire consequences if you stay, they still stay. And I did some research on why do people stay when they hear that they need to, to leave in order to save themselves. And here are some of the reasons that people give for staying. Some, some people say something like, you know what, I have enough resources and strength to survive on my own. I don't need to leave. Or, you know, perhaps the storm will change direction and it won't actually affect me. Maybe it won't be as bad as what they're saying it is. Or maybe, you know, I've survived other storms. I'll survive this one too. It'll be just fine. And so basically people are downplaying the reality of what forecasters are saying is coming. And this is the same type of thing that happens spiritually when people think about God's judgment. They have these same types of rationales for downplaying it. They say, you know, I'm a good person. I'll make it through just fine. They say, oh, I, I don't think that's really going to happen that way. It's kind of an archaic idea. It's, it's not going to come and, and affect me at all. And I say, oh, I don't think it's going to be that bad. After all, God's loving. God's merciful. He'll let me off the hook. These are excuses that people give. But one of the things we see in Scripture and how this parable is a warning for us is the fact that, that there is this storm coming. The storm of God's judgment at some point in the future when Jesus returns. Nice thing is we have adequate warning and Jesus gives us the provisions if we simply turn to him by faith and repentance, the provisions to be saved and not have to face the consequences of that storm. So that's why the all-important decision in life is what we're going to do with Jesus. 
I want to just have two key questions for us from this parable to help us to apply it. And the first question is this. Have you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? This is that most important decision. There are other important decisions out there that shape the direction of our lives. But this is the most important of all that shapes not only life on this earth, but life in eternity. And coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior is really a quite simple process if we so choose. All it means is that we just recognize, you know what, Jesus, I'm sinful. There's no way I can reconcile myself with you through good works or religious activities. Jesus, I need your mercy that you gave on the cross. I submit myself to you. I receive your gift by faith. And Jesus, I want to live for you now. That's the process of just, it can be done just in a simple prayer that reflects the attitudes of our heart. The process of coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you know, a lot of people out there, they know these truths, but they just kind of take them for granted. And they, they have not blatantly said no to Jesus. They haven't outright rejected him, but they also haven't really said yes to Jesus. But if we don't intentionally say yes to Jesus, that's the same as saying no. And so we need to all come to that point of intentionally saying, Jesus, I want you to be the center of my life. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. I want to follow you now. So that's, that's the primary response to the warning that Jesus is giving in this parable. The second response, or actually the second question is, are you trusting, or if you are trusting Christ for salvation, are you bearing fruit for him? Because remember this passage there's an expectation that people who are in God's kingdom will bear fruit. Verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, referring to the Jewish leaders, and given to a people producing its fruits. This fruit talks about character growth. It talks about growing in our love for God. It talks about helping others follow Jesus too. And fruit looks different in different people's lives. And it's not born in and through us, through our hard work. It's, it occurs as we remain connected to Jesus. I think of John chapter 15, where Jesus uses a vineyard type of analogy. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit and show yourselves to be my disciples. See, we are designed to bear spiritual fruit. And the way we bear that fruit is to remain connected to Jesus. And we do that through just basic you know, daily decisions that we make. Decisions make a difference. Decisions to connect with Jesus in a regular way in prayer. Through getting scripture into our lives. Through trusting him. Through obeying him. These are ways we stay connected to Jesus. And as we do so, he bears fruit in our lives. And so I pray for each one of us that not only will we learn interesting facts about this parable, it is a fascinating parable, but that we will actually take it and heed the warning and follow Jesus and put these things into practice. And I think of this afternoon, just in a couple hours, we have the opportunity to celebrate as several people are going to be baptized. And those people who are being baptized are people who have placed their faith in Christ. They have endeavor, they've, they've begun this journey of following Jesus, and they've experienced transformation in their lives, and the, the fruit of the righteousness that Jesus is working out in them. They aren't perfect by any means. But they're experiencing that transformation that Jesus wants to do. And we have that, that privilege of celebrating with them. And if you're wondering, what does it look like 
to really submit to Jesus? What does it look like to, to really experience life transformation through Jesus? I encourage you to come to the baptism picnic. It starts again at 1130. And it's a great celebration of Jesus' work transforming lives. And, you know, praise God that he is patient with us. And that when he sent Jesus to the world, he did not send Jesus to condemn us, but instead to save us. And may we respond accordingly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you came to the world. And Father, we, we thank you that you so love the world, that you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us gathered here this morning that we will heed this warning that comes from the parable of the tenants, that we will submit our lives to you, and that we will experience the joy of you transforming us from the inside out. Lord, help us to, to not see Jesus merely as a stumbling block, not a stone that we just, you know, absentmindedly kick out of the way. I pray that we will not just, um, just not say no, but not say yes either, but that we will intentionally choose to follow Jesus. And we thank you that he can be a, a rock to build our lives on. We pray these things in his name. Amen.